as leaders of Iranian-backed militias call for a pause in bombardments against U.S. troops. The Pentagon says that means nothing for expected retaliatory strikes over Sunday's drone attack. But what will retaliation look like? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. Iran-backed militias are responsible for these continued attacks on U.S. forces and that we will respond at a time and manner of our choosing. While we do not seek to escalate tensions in the region, we will also take all necessary actions to protect our troops, our facilities, and our interests. What does this all mean for defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. First up, Pentagon officials say calls from an Iranian-backed militia to suspend attacks on U.S. troops have not changed the calculus for retaliatory strikes. That's after Sunday's fatal drone attack on a U.S. military post in Jordan killed three American soldiers. President Joe Biden told reporters Tuesday that he had decided on a response to the attack. Within hours, the Iran-backed militant group Kataib Hezbollah issued a call to its fighters to pause such attacks. The Defense Department has said the attack has the, quote, footprints of that militia group. There have been more than 160 attacks since October, three of which have taken place since Sunday. In late November, the U.S. targeted Kateb Hezbollah, Hezbollah facilities in a previous round of retaliatory strikes. Pentagon spokesman Major General Pat Ryder said the Iranian-backed groups have been warned to stop the attacks on troops. You, you know, I, I don't think we could be any more clear uh, that we have called on the Iranian proxy groups to stop their attacks. Uh, they have not, uh, and so... Uh, we will respond in a time and manner of our choosing. Sunday's fatal attack on the Tower 22 base in Jordan was the first to result in serious injuries and death. Three U.S. soldiers were killed when a drone struck a barracks building on the base, while eight were airlifted to Baghdad for treatment. One service member is in critical but stable condition. While it remains to be seen whether attacks in Iraq and Syria will cease, there has been a small pause in attacks from Houthi militants since Sunday. Another important story today, the U.S. is working on a new wartime response plan that would affect how ships and crews prepare and deploy for combat. For more on this, naval warfare reporter Megan Eckstein breaks it all down for us. So Megan, thank you for coming on today. Could you first just remind listeners what kind of naval assets are currently in the Red Sea area? The U.S. Navy has had three main groups of ships deployed to the Middle East region. Um, First, they had the Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group That was already in the eastern Mediterranean in October when um, tensions in the Middle East started up. They had their deployment extended a couple of times, actually, before they had to go home. The Navy also has the Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group, which is in the Red Sea region um, in U.S. Fifth Fleet. And then there's also the Bataan Amphibious Ready Group which is a group of amphibious ships operating in the region as well. So these ships have had a very high demand on them. You know, they're trying to, in some cases, shoot down Houthi missiles and drones. Um, They're trying to be present to deter other bad actors from taking advantage of the situation. And they're also on hand in case there's any emergencies, um, any embassies that need to be evacuated or things like that. But because they've been on station so long, The aircraft carriers can stay operating at sea for a very long time. They're nuclear powered. They don't have to worry about refueling. Um, They generally have a lot of supplies on board, but the destroyers are much smaller and they have actually 
been operating for so long that the destroyers have had to start rotating in and out. So this is where we're seeing that even sort of um, a conflict with a lower end adversary, you know, the Houthis aren't as sophisticated as somebody like Russia or China, but even an extended conflict with a lower end adversary does take its wear and tear on these smaller ships. Um, they're having to take a knee, if you will, and um, take a break, do maintenance, let the crews rest a little bit, and then come back into the fight. And now the commander of U.S. Fleet Forces Command is working on plans for a sustained wartime operations for naval assets in the region. What does that new plan look like? Yeah, the head of U.S. Fleet Forces Command, Admiral Daryl Cottle, is looking at creating a global maritime response plan. And this is sort of acknowledging that if there were to be a conflict, if the Navy needed to send more ships and airplanes and submarines forward, um, obviously they would take advantage of whoever was already in theater, but they would need to perhaps shorten maintenance periods. You know, if a ship was already in maintenance, how can you quickly button it up and get it out the door? Um, if ships are in their training phase, how can you make pre-deployment training faster? That way they're potentially ready to go on a quicker timeline if they were called into a fight. Um, and so this global maritime response plan is really taking the normal process of generating forces that can go on deployments and saying, how could we hasten this if we needed to? Um, that way, if a fight were to occur, we can take ships that are almost ready get them deployment ready very quickly and get them out the door. Also on your radar for today, the VA is expanding access to in vitro fertilization following similar changes recently announced by the Department of Defense. Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Leo Shane III joins our episode to break down the development. So Leo, what exactly is the policy that the VA is changing and and who qualifies now for in vitro fertilization? Yeah, so last week we got wind that the Defense Department had updated its policy regarding uh, IVF treatments. Previously, only married couples were eligible to, uh, to receive the treatments, um, and those married couples had to use their own sperm and eggs, and this severely limited some of the uh, individuals who could, could take advantage of it. Uh, Defense Department announced that, uh, you know, they, uh, after, after a lawsuit, um, they would be changing their policy to include unmarried married couples, single individuals who were interested, and um, in, a, in a, another big move, uh, allowing donated sperm and eggs for uh, individuals who may be injured or who just need that extra medical assistance. So that was held as a pretty big move. It was expected that VA would probably follow suit, but um, VA at the time had said they they were still reviewing the policy. Now, in a press conference, uh, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough on Tuesday said, yes, he's they are going to follow DOD. The timing is still to be worked worked out, but they will make sure that VA's policies link up with the DOD policy so that unmarried couples, single individuals um, will be able to take advantage of those services as well. So I found that interesting, Leo, that, that the VA followed along with the Department of Defense's decision. How common is that? for the VA to follow the Pentagon's lead. Yeah, there's a lot of coordination between the two departments, but this is a little unusual. They don't they don't usually uh, see their policies this this linked together. In this case, VA's policy is actually based off of DOD memos and DOD regulations. So um, what we've heard from DOD folks is the reason that they can't give a timeline, they've sort of been taking a little bit more time with this, uh, is because their policies are, are inextricably uh, connected to what DOD does. So as soon as they see what the DOD policies are, they'll be able to move ahead. But you know that 
the DOD population is a, is a smaller population here. You've got the active duty folks who are interested. A lot of them are already involved. But as folks leave the military, they may be more interested in starting a family. They may have more time um, with, uh, with a partner or without a partner to, to think about that. So really, the VA signing on to these changes is going to exponentially increase the number of folks who, who could take advantage of them. Um, and it'll be interesting to see just, uh, just how wide that, that, uh, that VA policy goes. And now here's some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. Politico reported that American defense companies racked up $81 billion in new foreign military sales last year. That's a more than 50% increase from 2022. The Hill reported that a group has asked the Supreme Court to block race-conscious admissions policies at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. The group, Students for Fair Admissions, led the legal challenges that eventually led to the end of affirmative action at American colleges and universities last year. The most recent Medal of Honor recipient died Sunday after a lengthy battle with cancer. Army Captain Larry Taylor was 81. And the VA Inspector General found that hundreds of veterans who enrolled in a technology jobs training program received thousands of extra dollars in housing stipends due to a quirk in federal law. And on this day in history, in 1968, as a part of the Tet Offensive, a squad of Viet Cong forces attacked the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EVB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Megan Myers, Megan Eckstein, and Leo Shane III. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day.